Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski, Christo Avalis here, and we are reaching about a week since one of the major oligopolies in our great nation just decided to really screw the pooch and just not do their jobs. And of course, I'm talking about the Rogers outage that happened on Friday. For those of you that don't know or perhaps weren't affected because you're not of one of the three companies that controls all <laughs> telecommunications, basically, here in Canada, it was 15 hours long. All service was down for millions of Canadians. They have a market share of approximately 12 million. But even if you don't choose Rogers, you're still likely affected because this affected um, the debit services at a lot of different places. This affected just general Wi-Fi at locations. And it was kind of funny. You know, people were joking about it, of uh, being at Starbucks's and trying to work. But there was some real serious ramifications. You know, there's been a lot of stories, even one close to me here in, in Hamilton, where a man couldn't call 911 as his sister was having an active aneurysm. And fortunately, they were able to get help. But th this idea that we have such an oligopoly that completely controls something that's so essential is absurd. We got a message, I think it was yesterday, from the CEO saying, you know, we're going to look forward and make sure that 911 service isn't disrupted, even if we're doing maintenance. And you just kind of think for a second, Krista, like, shouldn't you have done that beforehand? That seems like something you should be aware of, you know, like that seems like something that you should already be doing. That's that seems like a pretty important thing to have on lock, no matter what, if you're doing uh, maintenance or not, which again is a little hard to to buy at this point. Were, were you affected at all when that happened or were you with one of the other big three? Yeah, I'm with Kojiko. Oh, so it was I didn't notice it personally, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I work from home and am with a different company, but you know, like you're right though. Cause like if you went to a store and you need to interact, like we, we, uh, I got emails from like certain companies that like we've done, we've bought from before being like, just FYI, our interact is down. So like, keep that in mind if you have an appointment with us today, mm -hmm. things like that. Right. Um, and you know, but like it, it, it didn't affect us, but uh, I definitely saw how many people it affected. Yeah. And also like you, like you learn that it's not just consumers. Like, you know, I don't have home internet today, uh, but you know, it affected, you know, basic services, uh, how businesses operate. It's a, it's a surefire sign that we need to uh, really address the fact that these, these conglomerates, these unaccountable, undemocratic businesses are not only monopolistic or oligopolistic, um, but, you know, effectively control our public services uh, in mm -hmm. a way that leaves us vulnerable when these companies either fail due to technical issues, but even, you know, more concerningly, what if they weaponize this control they have over our systems, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that I don't think we've really grappled with as a society. Mm -hmm. And there are many instances of, you know, the telecoms in particular, essentially already weaponizing their monopolies of, of just, you know, pushing out different regions, not providing the same rural access because, frankly, they don't have to. And it, it, I just felt like this week we really had a moment 
where regardless of your political stripe, unless maybe you're like deeply entrenched neoliberal, most Canadians were saying, okay, you know, this needs to change at the very least. And I think a lot more Canadians than ever before were supporting the idea of nationalizing the telecoms for all the reasons you just said and so much more that we're going to talk about today. But I, I do think, you know, I was pretty disappointed because I we saw from Jagmeet as this was going on and a little bit afterwards, I guess it was afterwards, not as it was going on, that the push wasn't for nationalization. It was about breaking up. It was about stopping, you know, maybe the Rogers Shaw deal through petitions. And Crystal, I just I don't think that's enough. And I really don't think that's capturing the moment that that's happening right now. Like he could have had a lot of steam with this. People are pissed. People don't want the basic services to be affected. I don't think many Canadians were aware. I, I certainly wasn't of the reach in you know our daily lives that Rogers has. And when it does go down what happens, you know, what, what do you think? Cause I want to talk about, you know, how nationalization would work. I know you've written on this in the past, but what do you think about Jagmeet's response to this moment that we've had here in Canada? I mean, I, I don't know if it's sufficient, right? Well, mm -hmm. I know it's insufficient. Um, <laughs> I mean, some of it's correct that the, 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 the oligopolistic nature of the industry leads to everything from unfair prices to lack of good service uh, to uh, these major issues happening. Um, and Singh was focusing in particular, and he has been talking about this before this calamity, on, you know, like the Roger Shaw merger, mm -hmm. which, which, which might happen, which would only serve to make an oligopolistic industry even more quasi-monopolistic, right? Mm -hmm. And would maybe exacerbate these existing issues. And so a lot of what Singh has been focusing on has been kind of from like a consumer angle and from like a competition angle being like, we need to have better competition. We need to stop the merger. We need to pass better laws that protect consumers. And, and I don't think he's wrong on some of those points. Mm -hmm. But... The elephant in the room is that it, it's not simply monopolies here or oligopolies here that are that are affecting things. It's it's like private control over public utilities, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, the the internet is a fundamental public utility, right? Yeah, absolutely, like power, like water, like those sorts of things. And it's like we on the left and me, even many, even many centrists and stuff do not want to see privatized hydro. Like, remember, oh, yeah, <laughs> when privatizing hydro was unpopular with Ford voters, even. Mm -hmm. there's a reason why Ford's not going to do anything to turn it around. Of course, it's all bullshit. But you remember in the 2022 election, you've probably heard radio ads where Ford attacking the liberals was like, and, you know, uh, Del, the Del Duca win liberals privatized your hydro. Right, yeah, which is funny because to they hear, understand yeah. <laughs> it's a public, it's a fundamental utility, and people aren't comfortable with having that controlled for profit. And I think that there's a growing realization. Maybe this is simply because the internet is becoming more and more ubiquitous within our lives, or it's because like the younger generation, uh, digital native, whether the, whether they're digital natives, like people a little bit younger than us, or or people like us who at least as adults, like never knew a world without ubiquitous internet. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, it, 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 it's, we understand that like this is every bit as essential as the other classic utilities. Uh, 
And why do we tolerate it being controlled like it's some sort of luxury item? Yeah. Right? And I think that the NDP's messaging, um, at least from the from the central party, because uh, you've heard different things from some MPs and, and, you know, you could maybe point to certain policies that the party has supported in the past, which might be different. But the main thrust of the messaging is, you know, we're going to focus on making things more competitive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's going to solve the, the main issues. And I don't think that ideologically fits with the, you know, the, uh, an even social democratic vision of the country. And I mean, there's great examples here. I mean, in Saskatchewan, which right now is probably the most right-wing province, mm-hmm. like in the last federal election, um, you know, they, they still, I don't know, it was 2020 in the 2020, uh, 2020, 2019 federal election, the, um, the, they elected every seat to the uh, conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Every seat. And I believe in this election, did they do the same? I'm not sure. But it is, it, it's more conservative in many ways than Alberta in terms of its like actual support for four parties, right? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Saskatchewan, yeah, in this election too, I just checked. In the 2021 election, all 14 seats still went conservative. Whereas in Alberta, uh, you know, uh, the four, four Alberta seats went to non-conservatives, two to the NDP and two to the liberals. Um, and so um, most conservative province, very right wing in a lot of ways now, but they have Saskatel, mm-hmm. right? Which is a publicly owned provincial crown corporation that provides internet and telephone and those sorts of things. And, you know, it hasn't been privatized likely because it would be devastating politically to the government that did so, but there's probably even a realization from, you know, the very, the, the conservative population of Saskatchewan, again, the most conservative in the country, at least if you look at their voting by, by federal parties and, and all of that, is that people there realize it works, like mm-hmm. it works, right? And it works because it uh, provides services based on need as uh, and, and not profit. Um, and I think that's a, a good lesson. There's a good lesson there. Um, you know, it was created by the CCF NDP. It's a legacy of the, of the left in Canada. And we need something like that federally. Now, to be clear, in Saskatchewan, it's not a fully nationalized system. I, don't, I, I believe you can still get, like, you know, Rogers and stuff there if you want, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe the model federally uh, is not necessarily to create a... A, 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 a one you know company system but it would allow you to create say a public option yeah. if you will which would give people a choice which could be a window into the industry which could help create competition which could address the failures of the existing market right mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear just how so many times we have a service that is absolutely left wing, if not, you know, social democratic that exists here in Canada that operates in the most stringent and strongest conservative, uh, you know, thresholds because it just works like those those instances when we have real social services, when you're when your government actually does something that you want it to do to provide a service, it's kind of undeniable the success of it. So I, just for me, it's it's really disappointing 
to hear the NDP still sticking with this idea of competition. Cause like you said, even ideologically that always tastes just a little bit wrong coming out of the mouths of leftists here in Canada. Like that's not really what we're after. We're after it, it being something that can be relied upon. That isn't pushed with the same sort of um, profit mentality and can just be a real service because it is so essential. Even if you don't believe that internet access is essential, which I think most of the people listening to my voice do right now, you have to agree that having access to interact and debit in our current system has to be an essential service. That, that, that there's no realistic way. And of course, 911 access just has to be accessible no matter what. And I don't think you're going to find a lot of Canadians who would say otherwise, especially when you take all of this and compare it globally. You know, I don't know how many infographs you've seen this week, Christo, but just to see how much Canadians spend on average for, you know, the basic whether it's uh, internet access, whether it is phone service, whether it's cable in comparison to other, you know, Western nations, it is insane. The price gouging, just the, the absolutely rampant increases in things that just don't exist in other countries. And it's wild to think like, do, do we have a special internet? Do we have the extra platinum that for some reason costs 30% more uh, here than it would be in Australia for some reason, even though they're able to give access to so many rural areas that we aren't too able to hear. Like I just, I, at this point in time, I do feel like it's hard to advocate for any sort of benefit of these oligopolies. Like people are sick of it. They want to change. They, they saw what happened. And uh, yeah, I guess just for those maybe that aren't aware um, Krista, what would be the reality if we, if we got something really great here? If if finally Rogers was identified, I believe they're the most popular uh, carrier here in Canada. If they, you know, what would be the process? I guess of them turning into a national or a public, excuse me, a public option. Well, I mean, like what you would have, and like actually, I. I'm not sure. So maybe let people let us know. I'm actually looking this up now, what the internet reality is in Saskatchewan. So people let us know if they have other providers yeah. or not, uh, you know, or whether it's that the internet is only SaskTel, but there's uh, Rogers can provide phones. I'm not sure. But the, the reality is like you, you could either nationalize an existing carrier. It could be quite expensive, although mm -hmm. maybe you could just say like you owe us Rogers and just like you nationalized them without compensation. But that would be quite difficult. But you could buy an existing company, um, you know, whether it's one of the larger ones or a smaller one, and you or you could uh, create create one from the ground up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in so doing, you could basically uh, operate and offer people services uh, based on 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 providing those services rather than providing profit, and that could uh, expand access. Uh, expand accessibility both to maybe say lower income people but also to rural and underserved areas uh, and and by doing so you you offer the, the the philosophical message the ideological message that this is not just a a thing to be profited off of the internet uh, access to utilities but fundamentally uh it, it it's it's there to uh be infrastructure right mm -hmm. it's there to build a an equal accessible 
uh, interactive society, but also like, you know, it's the, this is there to be a service to people, to people who work from home now, to small businesses, to big businesses, even this is there to be a, 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 a thing that helps, um, helps a modern economy work and thrive and be vibrant and all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's what we look at. I, I think that that's an option. One option could also be, even though this would be an, an area where the federal government building a crown corporation would be jurisdictionally appropriate because uh, telecommunications is undeniably like federal, right? Because it, it crosses provincial borders. It crosses international borders. Uh, it's a federal regulated industry. But the, the answer could also be that the NDP could, 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 could encourage provinces working to build their own public alternatives. Again, Sasktel has a crown corporation. Maybe the way forward, at least in some places, is to create uh, provincial or even regional crown corporations mm. that would work. Maybe, uh, you know, the, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, Ontario, the Ontario NDP looking forward to its next election, maybe should have uh, Ontario Tel or Ontel mm. being one of the platform pieces, right? To create a publicly owned network. Right. You know, like yeah. uh, Simon Black, who's a uh, labor studies prophet, Brock tweeted this, you know, last week as all of this was happening. He said, you know, uh, hey, Ontario NDP, it's called Sasktel. It's public. It's reliable. It's cheaper than Rogers. It's so popular. Conservative government won't privatize it. And Balagus is gone. So just say it. Right. <laughs> and then another uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, another professor that I know from academia. Uh, who lives in Saskatchewan says, is it the time that we still start telling the rest of Canada about the public provider Sastel? Because having a public pro provider is reliable, cheaper, and oh so sweet with its 5G coverage. Mm -hmm. And so I think that whether it's federal and you build one national crown corporation, uh, you know, it may, you probably would find it difficult to do it to the exclusion of competition, but build a public option or whether you encourage that. And maybe the federal government could help with funding and things like that. You encourage provinces to build their own crown corporations. Maybe even I don't even know the logistics of this, but for smaller provinces, maybe you have like Atlantic tell and you could have a, a, a joint venture between the three Atlantic provinces because there might be scaling issues, right, mm -hmm. for smaller provinces. Uh, I, I don't know, but I definitely think the solution has to include the realization that the Internet is access to the Internet is a fundamental human right and yeah. markets do not effectively provide fundamental human rights. We've seen it with housing. We even see it with food to some degree. Uh, things that are fundamental human rights when handled by the market do not act, do not become fundamental human rights. And I think that with the internet, the solution is whether it's at the provincial level or at the national level, uh, we need more public options, right? Saskatchewan is the model. Again, it is a very conservative province, right? They have mm -hmm. a very conservative uh, Saskatchewan party government. They've for the last two elections, They've only sent conservatives to Ottawa. Uh, again, not even Alberta did that. In 2019, they sent one one non-conservative. This time, they sent four. Um, the the answer is that public option. Yeah, and I I do think you you touched on something there that is essential. This this idea that the market cannot provide this, and it's actually the next story we're going to talk about of, of what happens when we are in a crisis, when we are in these changing times. Again, when we're facing a, another recession where inflation and um, access to goods are, are affecting our, our daily life, 
you see how the market actually profits those who are in control and not providing us just the services we need. We we need these services right now. So I guess my final question on this, Christo, because these all seem like great ideas that everyone really likes. So naturally, it probably won't happen here in Canada. So I just want to know what you think about, you know, what it would take to make this an actual movement when right now the NDP at least, you know, the party itself, the, the the center of power in the party, like you said, is not saying this. So what would it actually take? And why do you think they're not? Because I'm just like, I'm a little bit perplexed in this moment. Because for me, maybe they have different analytics here. They're seeing, you know, different echo chambers. But it seems like this is something that people really would be entertained and, and want to at least consider now more than ever. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you if you look at it, you're right. If with the NDP not either fully pushing it or not at all pushing it, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, one of the big challenges is that like it's kind of like the wealth tax, right? Mm. Like it's kind of like the wealth tax. Um I I know the data about the wealth tax better, but it's clearly something we've talked about this where you look at it and it's like 80%, 75% of Canadians support a wealth tax and a majority of people from every region, including the conservative-leaning provinces, support a wealth tax and even a majority of conservative voters support a wealth tax and like a hyper-majority of, of non-conservative PPC voters, right? Support a wealth tax. It's like if Parliament responded to the desires of the people... Then we'd have a goddamn wealth tax, yeah. right? We would have at least some kind of wealth. I think the the NDP's kind of one percent over twenty million model that they ran on in the twenty that was what was polled, right? Like you know something yeah. pretty modest, in all honesty. But you would have it. Um, but the reality is that the Liberal Party and the Conservative parties, even though a majority of each of those parties supporters support a wealth tax, fundamentally uh, they don't. And mm-hmm. so I do think there's like a risk here or a, a, a thing here where it's like it's going to be one of those things where I bet if you went to the people and say, would you like a public option uh, in Internet, something like Saskatchewan has, like SaskTel, you would likely see strong support. I'm not sure if it would be quite as strong as the wealth tax because I don't know if it's as simple to explain and convey in a poll. Yeah. But I just I whether it's because the government feels it'll be too expensive to set up whether they feel it's uh, too threatening to corporate interests. Uh, the, right now, it just it seems like people are frustrated, but there doesn't seem to be a, a movement within the political system to do anything about it. And it could also be the case that it's like people care, but do they care enough that it's going to change how they vote? And if not, well, then the parties don't have to really change how they behave. Right? Yeah. Like, this is the thing with the wealth tax. Like, Sing either a fail through failure of the NDP or because um, voters had different priorities. It's not as if a significant enough amount of voters were willing to say, yes, I want a wealth tax. And if the conservatives and liberals don't offer it, I'm not going to vote for those parties. And mm-hmm. until that second part happens, you see very little incentive for parties to change. So I, I don't know how many people are going to vote in the next election based on their telecommunications policy, right? 
Yeah, it's interesting because I do think there are more there's more of a contingent of voters who are, you know, generally progressive and perhaps even NDP voters that would now make the choice because the NDP doesn't include this in their platform. They're not exactly comfortable. They're disillusioned. They're not going to vote for the NDP and maybe not vote at all. But like you said, that doesn't really. Unfortunately, we're not the numbers aren't there to change policy. That's what we've seen before. We talk about that so much on the show of these principled stands by our listeners and and other people on the left here in Canada. It's just not enough people to actually move the party at this point in time. And I I just think that unless I'm mistaken here, I do think that is like a real shame of that. The most progressive people can't move the NDP. I I do think that this this could lead to to the party shifting its position. I do. Okay. I, I, I could see given this, given the uproar, given that I know some people in caucus agree with us on our position that uh, simply taking a comp- competition angle, which again, not that you shouldn't take that angle. It's not that that angle doesn't have some value, but the, yeah. for that to be the main angle um, is a, uh, is insufficient is, is, <sighs> Is um is not good enough. I do think yeah. that you could see the party shift its position, but then it becomes okay. So we go to a <coughs> excuse me, we go to a twenty twenty five election. Uh, is this a policy that's going to move votes? You know, um, does the NDP say that they want to go back to the negotiating table with the Liberals on maybe making a Crown Corporation be part of the deal? Like these are all the the, the kind of nitty gritty things, and mm-hmm. I don't know if there's enough there, right? Yeah. Um, but you have seen like the liberal government be put on the back foot a little bit, like sing did, did get some points on the competition angle, at least by saying that, like, you know, if the issue is that one company controls too much of the industry and all of that, then doesn't it make sense that the Rogers Shaw merger could potentially make the next time this happens worse? Or if Rogers and Shaw were already merged now, wouldn't that have meant more people on the mm-hmm. Rogers network? Out of because you know if you have Shaw now I don't believe they've merged yet of course so I think like you might have been affected under the merge system but not under the current one if that yeah. makes sense. Well, it's in, again, it's it's a point we find ourselves a lot here on the show. We, we consider something that we believe, at the very least, most NDP voters would absolutely support and likely most Canadians would support. It's a real progressive change that will make the lives of Canadians better and it's a little unsure if the arithmetic or the, the background noise works for the NDP to actually push it. And I, I get that and it all makes sense. But at this point in time, like, you know, we, I just, I feel like we come to this point a lot, Christo, where it's just, okay, are they going to actually be the real progressive change in Canada or are they going to tweak a system with some progressiveness in it to make it work a little better for us? And it's hard, you know, I'm not of one that believes you just need to throw the party away because of that. And I, I understand though, a lot of voters that, that feel that way, but I I do think that now is the time. And uh, at least for me and probably a lot of you, this is an issue I'm going to keep talking about 
as oh, yeah. you know it continues. This is something I think it's okay if we have you know MPs on the show that we need to ask you know this sort of question and just publicly this is an important thing because if 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 at the very least if you and I and other people aren't aren't doing that from the left then there's like zero percent chance unless there's a huge shift with those from the middle going to the left on this issue and like you said that doesn't seem to be happening if it didn't happen this week you know when the fuck is it gonna happen right well, you're, um you're 100 right though like uh that like at, at, at core like this is a thing right that we need to kind of prioritize and like, like let's be clear a lot of people would make the case and reasonably so that you know having a a, a public option for internet, either at the provincial levels or at the federal level, is part of the tweaking capitalism. Yeah, right? like that, that's you're absolutely not, right. <laughs> this is not building a brave anti-capitalist future. Yeah. It's an element of decommodifying society, which mm -hmm. is, I think, admirable, and it's part of the democratic socialist vision, is taking uh, essential things out of the market so that they can be provided on the basis of dignity and accessibility and equality rather than profit and your ability to pay. Like, when we built Medicare, it really didn't challenge capitalism at a fundamental level, necessarily. Um, you know, doctors can still effectively be... The, most doctors that open practices are effectively private business people. They yeah. just centrally bill the government, right? It's a, it's a single-payer system. It's not a fully nationalized healthcare system, right? So it's still very much... Uh, accommodating capitalist innovation and entrepreneurialship within doctors and in, in many cases and all of that. The point is it's like it decommodifies. And I think that's admirable, mm -hmm. but that already is in a way the compromise, right? Like the compromise position is, look, we're not going to fully nationalize uh, all the telecommunications and offer it on the basis of uh, no cost service to all Canadians and everyone just gets free internet is like, no, what people are kind of asking for is the SaskTel model, which is publicly owned, but you still got to pay for it. And, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, it might, it, it, in, in, on a federal level, it will almost certainly exist alongside, you know, other private companies. That is the compromise. Right. Like, well, yeah, like, I got to catch compromise. myself, Crystal. Like literally, I'm I'm here saying we gotta we gotta do this and move it, and even I'm clinging to the compromise position as being the radical one. So you're absolutely right. Like it's even it's even worse than I once thought. And <laughs> you know, just to continue with that notion, we're going from one oligopoly to the next. The Toronto Star did a really great investigation onto rising food prices. You know, every and here in Canada, a lot of people have noticed that. Like I think it's very difficult not to just the general price of groceries in the last year and a half has gone up by enough of a mark that you're able to say, okay, this is not just, you know, the natural movement of the market that, which as we all know is fucking bullshit, but they found that while the year over year inflation rate is up 7.7% for all products and groceries, the actual cost of those groceries has gone up 9.7%. And you think, you know, what's that 2%? This was an investigation of the, again, hilariously, the big three sales change of groceries here in Canada, which contribute to up to 60% of all groceries that are sold. 60 cents of every dollar goes to one of these guys. They, on average, each of these companies make over $100 billion 
billion dollars a year in revenue. So that 2% is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And when it was, you know, pushed to these representatives at each of the, um, grocery chains, the answer was just basically like, you know, you don't understand like, no, 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 it's more complex than that. This is just inflation. But they also found that in the first six months of this pandemic, the three chain sales, their revenue increased by almost $4 billion. You remember those first three to six months, right? Where it was just like living hell. People didn't know what was going on. They were terrified, couldn't leave their homes, and they made an extra $4 billion. And this is not, you know, singular to groceries or our our systems like this, but I I just, I'm, I'm feeling the same type of way that we have been in our previous conversation. Like there is no one even talking about the idea of having a public option for food. And the fact that that isn't even being really discussed in any reasonable level, when once again, we're being shown as times get worse and just generally, you know, the inflation is making things more difficult. And, you know, there's reasons for that. It's not just inflation, obviously, but we see how that these corporate entities are just profiting off of it and, and hurting us. So in these times we need protection. And if just, you know, we're not even trying to ask for all of them to be disassembled. Like like you were just saying, Christo, we just need some sort of public option for food. And for me, it's, it's just so disappointing that I know that is so far and away not uh, a real option here. Beyond, you know, the, the services that we already have that I think a lot of people would rightly so say are just not enough for most Canadians. They, they're so hemmed in with different requirements, uh, economic requirements, regional requirements, whereas we should just have a place where we know every single day that no matter what we're going through, we will get the sustenance we need and it doesn't have to be commodified in this sort of way. And I just, uh, what do you think, you know, using your crystal ball here, the likelihood of, of that kind of conversation of, you know, a more effective public food option when considering what's going on uh, with this industry, how, how far do you think that kind of conversation is here in Canada? Yeah, I haven't heard it nearly as much, right? I mean, people are angry about it, but I haven't heard as many people say, oh, we need like a national uh, grocery store chain. I, I, mm-hmm. I've i seen some people say we have to, you know, uh, uh, maybe look at price models. We have to look at uh, taxing the rich more. We have to look at price fixing, like what they did allegedly with the bread prices mm-hmm. and all of that. But I haven't seen it as much. Yeah, but people are furious about this. I mean, look, some of it is inflation, like because if like, you know, for most of the it looks like maybe they're starting to trend downward, at least in some places. But like, you know, oil prices and gas prices being up, that will make other things more expensive. You think if like, you know, you have to drive a truck of cabbages to a grocery store and the fuel to drive to run that truck costs more money, that will raise the cost, even if just by fractions of a cent or by a few mm-hmm. cents per cabbage. Right. Like that is a legitimate price increase on the farmer as well as the uh, transporter as well as the, the the all of that right but um, companies have also definitely taken the excuse of inflation to raise prices uh, even though they could one raise them by less to cover the inflation and they're raising prices by inflation uh, plus or uh, companies could uh, just make less money 
and they've clearly chosen <laughs> not to do that, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they they could say, hey, look, we're gonna we understand that consumers are having a rough time, and so while of course we are a business, we're also you know we want to be a part of the community, so we pledge to not raise our prices more than X or something, uh, given this period of inflation, and that clearly hasn't happened, um, and so I think it's a sign that. Uh, you know, we have another oligopoli oligopolistic industry in, in in food services, not quite to the same extent, of course, that telecommunications are in some way, because while there's not that many grocery chains, you know, there's, you know, there, there, there's more places you can get food in a broader definition. You can get Internet. It's yeah. still a major issue. And, and I think it's a sign that that people are 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 really angry and I definitely think there's room on the left to capitalize on that. Singh has talked about sending rebates to people, and I'm not mm -hmm. opposed to that. Um, but I almost wonder if we need like harder-nosed legislation and discourse uh, on price fixers and legislation, excess profit taxes. Singh has talked about some of that through COVID, but I think maybe we need to, to, to really center that again and say that whether it was on COVID and how uh, certain big companies made a lot of money during COVID while a lot of small businesses and a lot of workers uh, lost a lot, right, uh, mm -hmm. or, or stagnated because they, you know, in, 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 to be good citizens, they had to shut down or scale back or they, uh, they lost their job uh, because they needed to socially distance. Um, while these people suffered and gave up months, if not years of their life, um, these big companies, uh, you know, based on the kind of luck that they were in industries that weren't affected or they just let their workers be ground into the COVID yeah. dust or both, oh, um, man. you know, they've made, they made bank. And so we need to tax them. And so maybe we need something like that as well. We need like an inflation based tax on these big companies to say that, you know, if your prices have risen above a certain amount, we're going to, you know, have an excess profit tax until uh, either your profits are gone or you've paid the inflation penalty. You know, and they, mm -hmm. that's like that's what the left needs to explore. Again, uh, that that policy likely won't pass this parliament because I can I, I I doubt the liberals would support it, but I definitely think it's something that 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 can feed in. And it's you know people are angry about costs, right? And I, I think it's important that the left need to be a part of that discussion because right now it's being dominated by conservatives. Yeah. But in both the U.S. and Canada, uh, one because in 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 both countries uh, ostensibly. Uh, you have you have like liberal governments. You have like you know the Biden Democrats and and the Trudeau Liberals, uh, and so inflation is up under their watch. Whether or not it's their fault or not is a is a matter for debate. It, inflation does seem to be happening everywhere, so it's not exclusively like Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden's fault. But um, it's one of those things I think that the left needs to kind of really center corporate greed as as a main driver of mm -hmm. inflation or as a, an exacerbator of inflation, because right now what the right is doing is they're, as they're saying government is, they're saying that it's high wages. It's, 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 it's poor people being given the serve, even though like a lot of these, 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 these programs are long dead, right? Like people, or they had getting, to pay them back because yeah. there was one, like they made like 20 extra dollars that yeah. they didn't need to one week. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so basically like all of these programs are either dead or nearly dead in both countries. Uh, and but the argument from the right is it's it's because wages are all these wage increases and all of this social spending uh, and all of these these big government programs are supercharging everything and it's making things expensive and we need to scale back the economy and blah 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 right and and yeah. that's the argument from them and I think the left 
knowing that's bullshit, it, you know, is just like, yeah, that's bullshit, but you have to o- offer a counter narrative. And the counter narrative, I think at least in part, is that a lot of these companies that control basic necessities, whether it's housing or whether it's w- or food, have taken this moment to really screw, uh, turn the screws on, on regular people. Yeah, and I just want to say, and I, I didn't mention it beforehand, but I know there's so many great advocates in cities like Toronto that would be upset if I didn't. The other big issue when it comes to not having, you know, a nationalized service of, of access to sustenance and food is the fact that there are so many just racist food deserts that exist in major cities, but also in rural areas here in Canada, where it becomes almost impossibly expensive or impossible to access actual fresh produce that is provided to other people, you know, white people that live in suburban areas by the truckload that hurts the environment, but it's really easy to access. So having something that could be more nationalized that guarantees access to things like fresh produce in all air to every Canadian isn't just about the rising costs, but it's about fighting, you know, the systemic racism that's still fucking choking our country and like kind of saving our lives too in the future of Canadians. So it's, I just think like for me, it's such an absolute essential thing. And the really interesting thing about what you said, Christo, is this idea that there isn't that counter narrative. And the, the advantage that leftists would have is that it's fucking true. Like the reason why we are in this situation actively is because of you know, the, the profit driven uh, entities that exist within capitalism. It's not because, you know, people are getting paid more. It's just not true in, in, you know, the, the um, government field. That's just not what's happening. So no, wages, it's always nice when you have the advantage. No, no. I yeah. mean, they're, like wages are up. Of course they are. But wages in many cases are not keeping pace with inflation. Yeah, um, not not making 7% inflation here in Canada. No chance. That's just not how it works, yeah, right? People people are not getting 7% increases right now, right? Yeah. No, no. So wages are up um, and, and that's true. But they are, they're not the drivers of inflation, at least not in this case. Yeah. And speaking of higher wages, we are hoping for more higher wages for Starbucks workers across this great nation because some good news. We talked about some bad news uh, earlier today that there have been some big unionization wins, you know, over in Calgary, Starbucks workers at uh, the Millrise Center in Calgary. They they're going through there, right? They're they're doing it. They're organizing. and, And I like to see how there's a lot of key NDP figures that are showing you know, full support and really pushing this idea that more Canadian workers should be unionized and that it is just generally a good thing. I know there's some numbers out of the United States that are showing just generally that the unionization numbers are way, way up than they have been in the last few years. I think we talked about this a little while ago. But do you think like this move kind of shows that maybe, you know, we, we could see this similar sort of tide here in Canada? Like you said, it's it's almost shifting from the great resignation to realizing like, wait a second, you know, we got to work somewhere now. Sir, our government's not going to help us. Let's try to unionize and, and advocate for ourselves. Uh, any other indication that we could see the same sort of thing that's happening in the United States here when it comes to that? I mean, you're starting to see it with Starbucks. I remember there was a bit of a lag, right? Like we talked about Starbucks waves of unionization in the States, just dozens of them, right? Like dozens and dozens of Starbucks. 
uh, just unionizing all over the country, right? And in, in, mm-hmm. in, in largely in like the you know progressive cities at first, but then you started seeing them in smaller towns and in the south and in Texas, uh, like you know Starbucks workers organizing all over the place, often you know with very clear like votes, you know like stores maybe with twenty workers, you know eighteen of them voting to unionize, right? Like mm-hmm. just overwhelming uh, results in favor of unionization that 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 are just fantastic to see and um you know a lot of that is still in the very early phase people i I don't know how many have even negotiated a collective agreement in some cases workers are still being fired and retaliated against some stores are being shut down or threatened to be shut down so a lot of this to be clear is still in very early stages it's too early to say it's like a definitive you know total victory for um for uh, the Starbucks workers, but mm-hmm. this is a big thing. You're seeing another wave here in Canada, I think largely driven by the United Steel workers. Uh, you know, a lot of the workers are organizing through them in Canada. Uh, it, it's great to see. I, I don't have the data. Like, like there was a at hand, there was a, a tweet, uh, but like that, that union filings are up significantly in the United States and also reports, uh, unfair labor practice reports are up, which is bad in a sense but it may be a sign not that employers are getting worse, but that workers feel more confident in employ in, in reporting mm. their bosses because they don't fear being fired as much anymore. They're they're braver about that. Or they think to themselves that because unemployment is low and it is quite low, um, you know, if like, I'm going to report my shitty boss and if he does fire me, well, then like I'll go get another job. Right. Whereas mm. in like 2013 or whatever, it's like I'm afraid there's no jobs anywhere. I understand that technically him firing me for reporting him is even more illegal than what he's been doing with me, you know, docking my wages illegally. <laughs> but like, you know, I don't have, I can't afford a lawyer or I, yeah. I, I can't wait the, the year for the, the labor board to figure it out. So I'm just going to like take my head down and continue suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I think workers are more emboldened and it's great to see. It's great yeah. to see uh, workers organizing is always fantastic. Uh, you know, these workers are, uh, you know, organizing, uh, they're overwhelmingly young, they're diverse, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and any organizing is great to see, but especially in like, uh, industries where historically labor has had difficulty organizing, like whether it's in tech or whether it's in the service industry, those have been difficult, right? Especially outside of like hotels, like there's Mm -hmm. been a long history of like hotels being unionized. But like restaurant, fast food, coffee shop organizing has always been uh, fairly weak in North America. Uh, and now this wave at Starbucks has been has been a potential game changer. Absolutely. So I just want to end off here. You know, we, we talked a lot about the NDP and, and what they can do here in Canada. And, you know, we were searching for a new leader for the ONDP in Ontario and we talked about Joel Harden, an MPP here that that could be a real option for the left. Wouldn't you know it? He has released a really thoughtful statement, actually, uh, explaining why he will not be seeking uh, leadership of the ONDP. Um, 
basically, you know, there's, he says a lot of great things here, but his basic reason is that, you know, reading here, uh, I want to build on this work, but not as ONDP leader. My kids are young and my partner has a very busy job. I don't have the time required for a full-time Toronto role and the life of an MPP is busy enough. I'm putting my family first. And then goes on to say a lot of great messages about, you know, we need to have hope while there's also fear, there's also hope. So I do think, you know, he's he's really pushing it and it's, it's kind of almost refreshing to have a politician come out and just be like, yeah, no, it's my family. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be doing this. Uh, what do you think about these goings on? And like, if it's not him, I, I'm not exactly certain who could be the leader. I don't know anyone that has the real name rec- recognition that could push the NDP forward. Yeah. What, what do you think, Christo? Well, there's like, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, Joel, uh, Joel uh, was, you know, fantastic with that message i think he spoke with me before it was released uh you know basically just outlining it and i think he makes some really good points right that he uh uh you know uh, he, he in many ways i think he he felt he could do it he felt he could be successful whether it was to actually win the race or to uh to make a meaningful statement about the policies needed um for the party uh, uh, both like ideological but also organizational but I 100% respect his decision because he is right in some ways that, you know, given that if you're the leader of the party, even more than usual, you'll be spending much of your time at Queen's Park in all, you know, there all the time. Uh, it would make it more difficult for him to represent his constituents in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and given that Joel was one of the hardest working, maybe the hardest working in some ways, local representative, that would be very difficult for him. Um, yeah. You know, a leader sort of has to, in some ways, you know, give up a certain degree of, of presence in their riding, right? Like, you know, they, they you know, they, they, the, the nature of the job is, is very yeah, central, right? Yeah. You know, and, and so that might not be, and, and as he notes, it's, it's important that he's, he's putting his family first. He has sons that are at a critical age. And so this might be something that if it was four years from now, it would be in a very different position, right? But, but at mm-hmm. this point... I think that he's made the right choice. In terms of other people running, I mean, I think there's actually going to be a pretty big competitive race. Um, I think that someone like Merritt Stiles will run. Mm-hmm. But, like, beyond that, I'm not sure who's going to run. But I do hope to see, like, you know, a big, diverse field. I do want to see left-wing vision. Some people think that might come from someone like a Laura May Lindo or what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. But... At this point, I'm very confident that there's going to be a big field. Uh, I don't think it's... And I think most of those people are going to come from within the caucus. We've already yeah. seen somebody like uh, Matthew Green, you know, publicly state that, you know, he's very honored. But, you know, at this point, he he sees his role in Ottawa, right? You know, he, he wants to be active in, in helping the Ontario NDP and he's going to be helpful during this race. But he doesn't see himself jumping down, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I do think that's probably a sign that the party is going to pick from within the caucus. I, I think that it would be, I, I think it would be a mistake maybe to go beyond the caucus because one, you do have a lot of like talented, energetic, smart, you know, capable people in that caucus, right? Like despite the fact that the election in many ways was a setback and you lost seats, you kept the majority of your caucus and you kept a lot of your like up and coming people, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you, the Del Duca model didn't work and Singh, while I think in some ways he's actually been somewhat successful, like really got off on the back foot by getting elected halfway through Trudeau's majority. Remember it was like 2017 
and then not having a seat and then saying he wasn't going to run till the election and then changing his mind and running in Burnaby. And like, it was all just kind of a mess if we're being honest. Right. Yeah. And so I do think that, uh, right now, I think a lot of people are saying styles is going to run, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's followed by three or four other people. And I wouldn't suggest at this point that it's going to be a coronation. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think you're looking at a polyevra type. Someone's going to immediately come out and stake like 55% support in a, in a, in a you know, in a dozen per half dozen person field. I think that this race could be, could be competitive. Uh, but at this point, I'm not sure. I think Joel is right though. I do think we need to see someone that runs on left-wing policy. That's going to recognize that in some ways the policy still needs to go further, but especially that runs on the recognition that how you sell the policy mm. needs to be more energetic, needs to be more enthusiastic, and also that that the party needs to do much more in uh, in 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 recognizing the contributions of the rank and file and not taking them for granted, right? Like that's that's a yeah. big one, that's a big one, and so I don't know who in caucus is going to be willing to say that, able to do that, but uh, I was hoping Joel would run. It would be very likely that if he did run, I would have endorsed him and helped him with his campaign. So in some mm-hmm. ways, I'm disappointed, but I, I 100% respect his decision. And Yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is, like like you said, an opportunity now because there isn't, you know, a coronation for any one candidate for a real strong left voice to get that traction. You know, maybe that could that could happen here. Whereas if there was, you know, I guess with Joel, we, we would already be close to that. Well, but no, I'm well, wondering see, I, if Joel ran, I don't think it would have been a coronation at the party yeah. level. Right. Like, I mean, I mm-hmm. think Joel would have had a chance to win, but I don't know if, if he ran, it would be, you know, the the the. The, the 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 whole membership would rally behind him. Some people would have thought he was too left wing or or what have you. But the um, I do think you're right though. In general, that because this is not a race where from the beginning, like the 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 the, the history, the alternative history is that after Horwath, it was supposed to be Singh, right? Like mm-hmm. that was the, yeah. the narrative, right? <laughs> Didn't work out like that. If that was the case, and Jugmeet never ran for the federal leadership, then right now it would probably be a thing where like Jugmeet was going to be the next federal provincial leader. He would be basically unchallenged. Somebody might run against him and it would be, you know, not a guarantee, but it would be like, you know, this is the clear front runner right from the beginning and everyone else is jockeying with him. Right. Yeah. In this race, uh, it, it, it's, it's not going to, I do not think that a person is going to have such a, a, a path, even a path to a coronation. Right. Yeah. Even though I think someone like Merritt Stiles, who I do think is going to run, will have a lot of support could become run and kind of instantly become a front runner. I don't think it'll be an overwhelming thing. Yeah. Alrighty folks. Well, that is all for us today. Remember, push your representatives for the things that you want, whether it is, you know, public options for food, nationalizing telecoms, you know, if we don't do it, it's going to be hard to see where it's going to come from. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. 